Hi, this is Kutsia Naki, and welcome to the final episode of this season of Down to the Struts. But don't worry, we're far from the end of the road. Stay tuned through the very end of this episode for some special shout outs and a taste of what you could expect in season three. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Dara Baldwin. Dara is the Director of National Policy at the National Center for Disability Rights. We'll talk about Dara's activism and advocacy related to the experiences of Black disabled people in the criminal legal system. According to a study conducted by the Ruderman Family Foundation, between 2013 and 2015, half of police shootings involved disabled people. Dara will shine a light on the challenges at the intersection of disability and policing and how we can chart a course forward towards the achievement of transformative justice for Black disabled lives. Okay, let's get down to it. Thank you, Dara, for being with me today on Down to the Struts. I really appreciate your time to talk about this very important topic of disability, race, and policing that is so often not part of the discussion. So I'd love for you to start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and the journey that led you to work in the disability justice space. Well, sure. So thank you for having me. Peace and blessings to everyone out there. Uh, My name is Dara Baldwin. I'm the Director of National Policy for the Center for Disability Rights. My SIL, it's a SIL, Center for Independent Living, is located in Rochester, New York, but I live and work in Washington, D.C., D.C. Statehood, D.C. Statehood, D.C. Statehood, I have to say that. (laughs) So my journey to disability justice is, is long and good. I was born in Spain. My parents are serving their country. They brought me home to Newark, New Jersey, their home. I was raised there. And I came to Washington, D.C. in 2007, but haven't been worked on the Hill Congress since 2004. I was a child advocate in New Jersey. And in New Jersey, child advocacy, at least the organization I worked with, did disability work. I actually worked on a bill to make sure youth who were in the juvenile justice centers received their IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act services. A lot of states were removing that when someone became adjudicated and went in the system. So New Jersey, I worked on that in New Jersey. So I had done some disability policy. Came to D.C. and was a contractor for about two years and then met some people who were doing disability rights work. And at that time in 2007 is when people were starting to talk about race and the intersection of race in disabilities and the lack of black people and people of color in disabilities. So about 2009, two years later, uh, after, you know, meetings and conversations, I got my first job in the disability community, which was with TASH. They got a grant to make their board and their membership more diverse. And so I worked on that grant as well as some policy. I did a little education policy. Um, And then I uh, left TASH after about two years in 2011 and went to work for NICL, National Council of Independent Living, and where I 
expanded my portfolio of policy work to include much more and specifically around criminal justice reform, which is what we called it back then. A lot of disability rights groups do not work in criminal justice reform. Um, and they come from come to it at a different angle. They come to um, specifically around policing, since we're talking about that, with a um, lens of victimization. And that is not how black and brown people come to this work. We come to it with a lens of criminalization. We're criminalized by the system. But anyway, left there, went to work for the mayor, Mayor Gray at the time of DC in the Office of Disability Rights. I am not a government worker, so I got out and I went, I'm most definitely an activist. And I was told by people in the government, you're, you're too much of an activist. And I was like, okay, all right, this is the wrong place for me. Which, so I tell people this, that because that is the beauty of having an education, right? Is that you can choose different jobs and you can move yourself and having opportunities, which is what I try to do every day, release those barriers and knock down and dismantle those barriers that don't allow people to have choices. And I'm blessed to use my choices. So I left the office, the mayor's office and went to work for National Disability Rights Network, which is the national office for protection advocacy programs, for those of you out there who know them. Worked there for about four years and then now at the Center for Disability Rights. So that's how I came to this work. And I'm sure we'll talk about more of that in the rest of our conversation. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that journey. And I think it's important. I think your career trajectory illustrates a lot of different things. Um, one of which is realizing what you don't want to do versus what you do want to do. Coming into work as an ally, which I think is really wonderful. And I want to unpack more with you as we as we talk, just the idea of, you know, when we spoke initially, you mentioned that you don't identify as a disabled person, but, you know, obviously you've been working in this space for a really long time. And also, I love the shout out to New Jersey. I am also from New Jersey. So um, it was nice to hear about talking about the place of my roots. I wanted to just kind of dive right in. The murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in 2020 really shined a light on the deep, deep problems in this country of the brutalization and violence against Black bodies by police and law enforcement. But less discussed is the particular concerns of Black disabled people and their interactions with police. Could you tell us a little bit about that and like what are those specific challenges and, and what have you observed in your work on criminal justice reform and just share a little bit about what those concerns are for folks who may not be as familiar? Yeah, sure. So let me start with how disability work is being done because I think that kind of will give people you know, the foundation of this work. So, you know, many people know we have disability rights, which centers white people and their work and disability justice created by Mia Mingus and the 10 principles starting with intersectionality, right, is one and collective liberation is number 10. You will not see the disability rights community do one through number 10. And that caused a problem. In Washington, D.C., there are about 122 disability rights organizations and I worked with them for many years. I was the only person of color let me say that again, of color, not black. There were not many Asians, South Asians, Latino, Latinx, you know, not many other, there were none, not, not many, there were none. And so what that does and people don't understand is that these are the people here in Washington, DC who shape the policy work that is done around disabilities. So what does that mean? And I said it earlier, that means that if these groups who are predominantly white, 
they're led by predominantly white. Out of those organizations, there's um, all of them are run by white men, except for about seven of them. And those are run by white women. And there's one, Easter Seals is run by a black woman, but she's not here in Washington, DC. So what does that mean? Then people need to understand this. The people who are sitting at the table, those are the conversations you have. And so since these are white people who nobody's killing their people, <laughs> police are not killing their people at a rate in which they're killing black and brown people, BIPOC folks. Yes, they are killing white disabled people. I will say that, right? Like I said, a victimization is not a criminalization. That's one thing. And the other thing that I noticed um, in doing this work, and again, as you said, I don't identify as a disabled person, but I am part of the family, as people tell me. Just like I do LGBTQ work, I don't identify as an LGBTQ person, but I'm part of the family. I've been doing the work so long. I've done my trainings and talked to people and interacted and so I'm well respected and I and I I respect black disabled activists what I also notice about disability rights organizations is that they make VIPOC people choose between their marginality right which which marginalization is more important being disabled or being a person of color and you cannot do that to us you can't right that can't happen and so in conversations and I created multi marginalizations that you know people have many different identities and for many of us all of them are marginalized so I say all of this so you understand and know how I approach this work I had to leave that space because in the disability rights space they are not talking about the killing of black disabled people by law enforcement and so I had to go elsewhere. I went to the Justice Roundtable, which is run by now, um, it's still Nakichi Taifa. The Roundtable is where you find many organizations who think like us and who are approaching, now we call it transformative justice because we don't want criminal justice reform. We don't want to reform slavery. We didn't want, right? You don't want to reform criminal justice, right? You want to transform, right? And, and stop it, actually. I am by my soul an abolitionist, so you know that as well. But anyway, I had to go there. I had to go to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, right? With their justice reform task force and work on law enforcement because they worked on it from an angle of what we're talking about, the killing of black and brown bodies. But even in those spaces, right, as we all know, intersectionality, they don't really talk about disabled lives. At those tables, I was, I, I still am, and we still are probably the only disability justice group that's sitting at those tables, which is another issue we need to talk about, right? We need to start funding disability justice activists so that they can do this work. They are doing great work in the state levels, and I, I'm appreciative of that. We need it at the federal level, and many of us are discussing that. So that came up, right, the conversation. And also, when you started looking at the numbers, it's unfortunate the data is not collected in an evidence-based manner. You have the Washington Post who is collecting this and then you have the kind of killing projects, the projects of police shootings, people who are sending in data, who are telling people, okay, this person had a disability or this person was, you know, black and queer. And so that is something we're trying to change in policy and say, no, these law enforcement entities need to be collecting this data and telling us who they're killing and who they're harming, right? They're also harming people. Through much of the conversations, and many of the high profile cases that you hear about, those are disabled people, specifically disabled black people who have been harmed. Some of them have been blessed to live, some of them not like um, Mr. Blake, right, in Wisconsin, he, he lived, and some of them not, some, many of them killed, right? Even Eric Gardner, you hear about his case, 
he had asthma, he had breathing issues, he had disabilities for a long time, right? You hear about Sandra Bland and people who had mental health diagnoses. So you hear about that. But the last thing I'll say is this, also in that Black disabled conversation of people being killed by the police who are Black and disabled, you only hear and people really push mental health. And I have to push back on those civil rights groups when we're talking about or the intersection of law enforcement and Black people is mental health, mental health, mental health. That is a very large piece of it, but is, that is not the only piece of it. And that is not the only disability that is out there, right? And people need to understand that people with all disabilities come in contact with the police and black disabled folks are killed at a higher rate. Deaf, right, are blind, people who are come in contact, people who have physical disabilities. And then finally, there are so many ways that people come in contact with law enforcement that people don't address and see. Most people are talking about local law enforcement, such as the police who, Louisville police who killed Breonna Taylor, Minneapolis police who killed George Floyd, uh, Rochester police who killed Daniel Prude. These are all horrible cases, disabled people. But here's the key. Law enforcement is so much a part of our lives that people don't want to, they don't recognize that. And, and the policies that are out there are not covering those other law enforcements. TSA is one of them. And that's why I bring it up. TSA is uh, when you're traveling, well, many of us before the pandemic, when we were traveling in airlines and we we're hopefully going to go back to traveling, TSA is one of them, right? And patting down people and touching people and accusing them of carrying weapons in their wheelchairs or carrying weapons in, you know, on parts of their bodies or the metal pieces of their bodies for, you know, their amputee is a weapon and being disrespectful to them and harming their bodies, making them do things they can't do. They did that to disabled people. So I just want people to understand and see the whole concept of this work around ending the killing and harming of Black bodies and how that is also, you know, Black disabled lives matter is what that means. That's really helpful picture. And I, I appreciate that you shared the definition of law enforcement is broader than we think. There's many entry points for the government to police our bodies. I think TSA is a great example. We had an episode a couple of weeks ago about the immigration system and immigration and customs enforcement and the treatment of disabled bodies in that context. So I think thinking about the concept of law enforcement really broadly is really key. And I, I really appreciate also the point of lack of data. I think I saw a report from the Ruderman Family Foundation from a few years ago that said that about half of police killings involve disabled people, but that's not even, I, I don't even know that that's a complete number because of underreporting. So there's just so much we don't know. Taking what you've just described so helpfully, the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA provided essential protections against discrimination and unequal treatment for people with disabilities in the context of employment, um, housing, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about whether those laws that were designed to advance the rights of disabled people did anything in terms of protections when it comes to law enforcement and whether those protections have been effective or ineffective? So yes, um, these are great questions. And I will say this, you know, in doing this work, I come from a social equity. I have a master's in public administration from Rutgers University and concentrated in social equity. 
And I say that so people, because social equity is a public administration theory, just so you know, created by Philip Rutledge, who was my mentor and who was the person who got me to come to DC. So I say that so you understand and know, you know, I study a lot of civil rights laws. I am not a lawyer, although many people think I am, but I'm not, you don't have to be a lawyer to read laws. I tell people all the time, I can read. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> in reading many of the civil rights laws and regulations and things that are out there, 504 and the ADA are pretty ironclad and pretty damn good written <laughs> laws. I just say that. The public accommodation law in the ADA is so well written that for the Equality Act, right, which is not the last, but one of the last groups in this country to be, to have a civil right, right, LGBTQ and Equality Act, they use the public accommodation language from the ADA, just so you know that. So I say that to say to people, yes, the ADA is a great law and it is out there. And of course, there are some things that are missing from the ADA that we want to close up those gaps and those holes. Um, many people know it's Title II of the ADA, which covers public entities, which will cover law enforcement and, and all agents that really protect people's rights. And yes, they are really good laws, but the thing about laws is enforcing them. So I'll say that in this country, we have a really horrible um, track record of enforcing them, no matter how much uh, activism we have out there. Again, in doing this work, even the protection advocacy programs have been doing really good work in trying to train, right, the whole criminal justice system, meaning, right, from the law enforcement officers to the court systems, to the jails and prisons. It's just starting. This, I would say that we're on our good 10 years of, um, there's been some really good uh, cases, litigations where, right, law enforcement entities, police departments, sheriff's departments, right, they will arrest someone. So in Title II, communications in there. You have to communicate to the person in the format that is best for them, not for your agency. So when someone is arrested or even questioned about something, they don't have ASL interpreters, or right? They don't have interpreters who can interpret in different languages, right? Being a city like New York, right? Or here in Washington, D.C., where we have over 30 languages spoken, they don't have a sign language interpreter who can sign in Spanish or in, right, in Japanese or something like that. And many people are left going through the system, never properly being adjudicated. We have public defenders who don't know anything about the ADA. I have been told, and because I talk to lawyers, you know, who do this work, public defenders, even prosecutors who tell me, I may have three chapters on the ADA when they were in law school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I look at them and say, excuse me, or three paragraphs. And I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about? They don't know the ADA. And mm -hmm. I have had to say to them, these are friends of mine who do this work or people I come in contact and say, you need to read the ADA. It is not a long bill. It is not a long law. You need to know this. And so you have a bunch of people who are doing this work who have no concept of the ADA law or section 504 law. Mm -hmm. But the laws that are in there are, I think, would be very helpful in stopping and mitigating some of the things that happen to disabled people on the streets. But it is only a piece of that, right? Just like police officers are trained in different areas, um, but what they don't understand is racism. You mm -hmm. can, right, you can, you can talk to them about all of these different things. And as we saw on January 6th, on this insurgent on the Capitol, propagated by the White House, former police officers, former law, former soldiers who are racist. And so, yes, you can train some of this, 
but it doesn't always seep in and it always doesn't always take hold and it doesn't always work. Um, but I will say the laws that are there on the books are good. Part of this work is making sure that people who come in contact with disabled folks know these laws. You need to know that if you arrest someone who has a developmental disability and you can tell by talking to them, many of us can, that they may be on a fourth grade level of conversation with you, then that means you need to get a social worker in the room and help this person to navigate through whatever adjudication you are doing to them at that time. They should not be going through it alone. And that is in the ADA, that is title two. It is telling them that is section 504, right? You need to provide this person with the help they need to get through this situation. And many jurisdictions just don't use it or do it. And I'm thankful to the many lawyers out there who are taking this up and who are having these conversations, our legal aid systems and the protection and advocacy programs who have decided to start training people who are working on this. Disability Rights Washington is doing great work. Disability Rights Pennsylvania, Disability Rights Tennessee. I know a lot of groups, Disability Rights and Mass Massachusetts, who have taken this on. There's about 18 or 19 PNAs who have really pushed this to the forefront of saying we are going to address criminal justice as one of our top priorities for disabled people and coming in contact with the law. That's right. And I, I think it's a great point, the fact that advocates themselves, defend, defense attorneys, other types of advocates, they know the criminal law, but they don't know the ADA. And that education is so critical if you're doing this work. And it goes even further back than that. That I would say, you know, we have a, an episode with someone who talks about the lack of disability education and disability positive messaging at the elementary school level. So we have a long way to go in terms of educating people. So when they come into these professional professions, whether it's criminal defense or being a law enforcement officer, having that background in history and knowledge and understanding the laws and how they're supposed to protect people is really key. And I think this, your, your discussion about training and reform brings me to my next question, which is, you know, activists like yourself have posed a lot of different options and policy solutions whether that is reforming the existing system or as you described earlier, abolition. And I think you sort of answered this a little bit, but you know, from your perspective working in the disability justice space and as an activist, what path do you think is going to be sort of the most effective in terms of better protection and, and just eliminating the violence against disabled Black bodies? Yeah, sure. So as, as I said, I am an abolitionist and I um, believe that we need to remove any punitive systems in this country. So again, let's go to the foundations. People talk about structural racism. They use the words. They don't really know what that is. So in this country, let's talk about what happens. Whenever people come up with solutions, usually this is usually white folks. I just have to say that because that you're the ones who've been coming up with solutions to quote unquote problems in this country. It's always to be punitive. If you create something that causes harm to someone, then they will act right. And that is structural racism that comes from slavery, that comes from the slave master telling, right, that is how we control these slaves, is that we beat them. If you run away, we'll beat you. Make that slave an example to the other slaves. If they keep running away, cut their foot off. It's punitive. And that system has trickled down through the centuries into the minds and the customs and the way in which white folks, many white people, figure out these issues to be resolved. Instead of coming at them from a place of love and compassion. Because there's a reason why people are starving 
There's a reason why people can't keep a roof over their head. There's a reason why people are not able to get the jobs they want or keep the jobs they want or be paid the money they want in order to live a living wage. And this all is connected. People say, oh, what does this have to do with law enforcement? And what does this have to do with abolitionism? This is what we're talking about. Abolitionism is taking away the punitive side of how you all are resolving problems and infusing love and saying that we need to make sure there are systems that are fully funded to give people the education, the housing, the employment, the transportation, the clean water, the environment, the things that they need to live productive and thriving lives. And since the systems are not created by us to help fix these problems that were not created by us, Black people, Black and Brown folks didn't create these systems, we find out and see that when we talk to people about reform, we're talking to people who only know one way of fixing problems. And instead of having the possibilities, right? I want you to have the imagination of all possibilities. Then you need to move out the way. If you don't think there's anything more possible that you can fix the problem, then you need to move out the way. And so let me give some examples. When we so-called had this problem of drugs in this country, which again, <laughs> we didn't cause, the answer was war on drugs. When we so-called had a problem, war on crime. When we so-called had an issue and problem on poverty, which we do, war on poverty, it's always about war and killing and right? It, just putting that concept to resolving a problem yeah, does not help us who, who we are the ones who are living the situation. The New Deal, FDR was a racist. The New Deal is racist and ableist. People don't want to admit that. He created redlining, right? They made sure that he created segregated housing in the New Deal. The New Deal only helped those American citizens. In the 1930s, Black and Brown people were not considered American citizens, neither were disabled people. They didn't have a civil right. We didn't have a civil right. Black folks didn't have a civil right in 1930s. And so therefore we did not participate nor benefit from those social services that were created. So I say all that to say that when we think of reform, of course it's out of the quote unquote norm. It's out of the white person's norm of what reform is. And for us, reform is the endless possibilities of what we can do. And finally, I'll give an example, concrete example, where the police have been removed. So one, we need to define what safety is in this country. And in safety in this country for Black and Brown people is not the law enforcement. It's to never come in contact with law enforcement. So public safety is, again, another concept people don't understand. The public creating its own safety. It can and is being done around this world. One great example is the North Community Street Teams. We in North, I'm from North. This concept came up. Damon X is the D-A-A-M-I-N-X is the leader of these group of community street teams are made up of people from the community. So some of those people have people who have been justice impacted and people who have loved the community for years. And what they did is they set up a program where they walk the streets and talk to the community. They know the community. They walk children back and forth to schools when before this pandemic. They make sure the neighborhood restaurants and businesses are safe. And it's funded through the public safety department of Newark, not the police. There are no more police cars sitting on those corners, right? When kids are going to school and those kinds of things. And the last thing I'll say about it is 
in Norton, New Jersey, around this country in the fall of 2020, you had multiple Black Lives Matter protests. Norton, New Jersey is the only city where there were no riots. Not one building was destroyed or harmed. Not one business shut down or closed down. And there was not one arrest for those protests because of the North Community Street Team. These things can happen. We just need to stop thinking with minds of only harm and punitive and start opening our minds to love and care. And also knowing that you may not have the answers to these problems, that there are multiple people who are brilliant in their work, who need to be in leadership, who you need to listen. Some people need to get out of the way. You've been doing this for 30 years. You've been trying to fix homelessness for 30 years. It hasn't worked. It's time for you to move out the way and let other people lead. That is the problem we have here. And that is the reform that many of us who do this work see. Knocking down the first barrier is knocking down the barrier of specifically white folk who think they know better for everyone else and they don't. I think it's so, so incredibly powerful what you're saying. And I, I like this distinction between sort of reform and transformation and just completely removing the concept of punishment as the solution to problems. I think that's that's so incredibly powerful. So that brings me to a specific piece of legislation or an approach or chance to make reform or make transformation, which is um, was passed by the House of Representatives recently, which is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I know in your role at NCDR, you penned a letter in opposition to this bill. And I really would love to dig a little bit into what specifically about the bill did you find most problematic for Black disabled folks in particular? Sure, thank you. And the letter was, yep, it was penned by myself and Breon Wells, who is the president and CEO of the Daniel Initiative. And you can find the letter on Center for Disability Rights website under blogs. In this work, of course, I come from the angle when I do this work about saving Black and Brown disabled bodies. So we opposed the bill because it was not good enough. We also opposed the process. So those are two different things. So let me start first about the process. People like to answer one question. Let me go back a little bit. The other thing that happened in, in the summer and fall of 2020 is that we mobilized many activists, Black Lives Matter, Black Disabled Lives Matter, mobilized people to come out and vote during a pandemic, which was very scary, very harmful, very threatening for many disabled folks, but they did it and they came out and they voted. And 93% of Black people voted for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris to be president and vice president, and a Congress that we have. They're in the lead, the D and the D. House is a D and the Senate is now D, although that Senate is questionable. But anyway, we came out in the 90% number. The numbers for white people were 47%. So you still had a majority of white people who voted for Trump to be president. Let's be very clear here. And the reason I bring these numbers up is that now, here we are again, Black folks are asking, no more. We're telling you. We voted you in office, then you need to give us a 90% justice and policing bill. This was a 40% justice and policing bill. And the reasons, number one is they did not give a process. They had an old bill from the 116, which they wanted to quickly pass in 117, which you can do in Congress without having a hearing and conversation or a markup or any changes to a bill. You can pass it in the next Congress before April 1st. That was the waiver that the speaker gave. She said any bills that pass in 116, 
let's get them, you know, you want to get them passed, you can do that. And so Congress chose to do that. And Mr. Nadler, chair of the Judiciary Committee, and Ms. Bass, who's the author of this bill, chose to do that. What did that do? Well, we had about six or seven new Congress members like Mondari Jones from New York, Bowman from New York, and actually Cory Bush from Missouri, all Democrats, all who ran on defunding the police and all who ran on telling their people they was going to do something about policing, who now have no chance to talk about this bill. We sent three letters to the 116th Congress saying, you need to update this bill. You need to edit this bill. And they chose not to. So that was the process, right? It was like, we're just going to get this, pass this through. What was missing from this bill, the things that were missing specifically for many of us in this work, I'll give you three. Now you can read our letter. There's 10 of them, but I'm going to talk about three. One is qualified immunity and ending qualified immunity, which is a protection for law enforcement. And when they kill people, um, you can't sue them. You can't go after them. I will tell you, I worked in the medical field and I worked in the medical field. I'm much older than many people think, but I worked in the medical field when there wasn't qualified immunity for doctors and doctors used to leave instruments in people's bodies and do things to people. And people were like, we can't sue doctors. And we finally got that right now. You can sue malpractice. So this has to happen, right? Qualified immunity is not eliminated in this bill because of the Bivens case. They did not provide a statute for Bivens. And this is back to what I was talking about before, about the different law enforcement. Bivens case is a, is a Supreme Court case, and it says that you cannot go after law enforcement who are federally funded. This is a basic, right? federally funded. So what does that mean? That means this law, JPA, the Justice and Policing Act, only covers local law enforcement, like I just said to you. It does not cover, here's a list, sheriffs, county, state police officers, parks police officers, any police officers who are in your state who are federal people, such as FBI, CIA, DEA, AFT, and then also SRO, school resource officers, are paid through federal funding. And people act like Black disabled people don't come in contact with these people, which I just told you, TSA. They do, right? They are federally funded. So that means this bill only covers law, local law enforcement. What about all the other incidences, especially those of you who live in rural areas? You got sheriffs running around. Your, you got county and you got state police. They are paid through federal funding. Once one federal funding is there, that's there. That means you're not covering all law enforcement in this bill. Again, 40%. We want 90% of it. We want you to cover every law enforcement person that we come in contact with. And you chose not to do that. The third thing was the misconduct database. I did this because I know working with a lot of people in the community, no one's going to read that whole bill. That's my job as a policy person. I read the whole bill. I just put the sections. And because I work with people who do that, I said, okay, read this section. So if you read the section on misconduct database, that means police officers who, who create misconduct will go into this database. That is not true. In the database, they're only collecting use of force and racial profiling, which are such a high bar to prove. As I just told you, we don't have data. We don't have information. These police officers self-report. What police officer you know is going to come and say, oh, I was racial profiling, so put me in the database. <laughs> no one. Like I'm like, that's just not going to happen. I'm like, what is this?
this, right? Oh, I was using use of force. So put me in a database or even a sergeant or a lieutenant, someone who's in charge, who's going to look at their person because they got the blue wall and they're going to say, oh, Officer Jones, you were use of force. I'm putting you in that database. Mm -hmm. It's never mm -hmm. going to happen. That mm -hmm. is right. So it is language around this misconduct database is 40% language. We wanted 90% language. So there are times when law enforcement people, all, all law enforcement are caught in committing crimes. They are convicted of committing those crimes and yet they still get to work such as bribery, harassment, assault, sexual assault, perjury. How many cases we got out there where law enforcement, police officers have lied about someone committing a crime and now those people are in prison. That's why we have what's called the Innocence Project, who's getting people out of prison. And most of their cases are law enforcement people who have lied, right? That's perjury. You were on the stand and you lie. So those people who commit those crimes are not going in the database. Why is that important? Because they move from city to city. They leave one city, they got in trouble doing perjury or bribery or harassment. Okay, I'll just go over here to the next city, which is what the police officer did in George Floyd's case. He worked in three different cities before coming to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And because he wasn't in the database, they could look and say, oh, hold on, you got a problem here. It's not in there. Just like, and the last thing I say, right? If you're a lawyer and you commit some crime, you will lose your license to practice law throughout the United States. You're not leaving California and going over to Michigan talking about, oh, uh, yeah, I got in trouble with the California board. Oh, you know, they disbarred me. Now I'm going to come to Michigan and practice. That's not happening. Teachers, right? Clinicians and doctors, if you even hemoglobin person, people who collect blood in the, in the hospital, if they do something wrong, they go in the database. Nurses, they know. And so you can't move from city to city and try to kill people or try to harm people. They go, hold on here. You were in Connecticut. You had some problems. You come here to Florida. So this right is not happening for law enforcement who we know have a track record. Again, I will say the people who were up there on the Capitol on January 6th for the insurgents, right? There are many of them and they are in the police department now as live active law enforcement people who commit crimes, yet they will not go in a misconduct database, not this one, because all they're collecting is use of force and racial profiling. So I say that all of this to say to people, we oppose this weak bill and we wanted a stronger bill. And we felt that this House of Representatives should have done this. And many people who don't know how policy goes, it's the House. And if they don't do it in the House, it gets watered down in the Senate. And specifically in this Senate, we have two Black men, Democrats, who would support this. We don't have a lot of people on the Senate side who are going to sit here and say, make this better. And so it's going to get watered down and we didn't want that. And I also don't see this passing in the Senate. And so we're going to have to keep fighting and continue to fight to get the 90% bill that the 90% of black folks went out and voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and this Congress to do. That makes a lot of sense. And it's helpful to kind of tease apart the the bill a little bit. So I'm glad that you put on your policy hat and did that for us. And the other thing I observed in the database, the requirements for being in the database is it does not mention any kind of violence against disabled people as a qualifying uh, event that would land you in the database. So that's another sort of 
problem. There's no language in the bill around disabilities. We try. I try to get certain things in there. And you're right. Even assault, right, is not collected for the database. Yeah, exactly. So that leaves me to ask, where do we go from here? You know, what are what are your next steps? Sure. I'm always hopeful. There's always hope and I'm always hopeful and I want you all to be hopeful. So what I will say is this is a holistic way of doing this work. So several things that can happen. We need to continue the marches and the protests. They need to continue to move forward. Um, They've kind of died down and slowed down. And I know I'm talking from a place of privilege, so forgive me. And I did my marching many years ago, but I feel that the protests need to continue and specifically Black Disabled Lives, we need to promote. I have my Black Disabled Lives uh, t-shirt on. Promote that, buy the t-shirt, promote the hashtag, get it out there. Um, So there's many ways to do this work, right? The marches and the protests. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, social media. I am a social media person. I'm only on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not on everything. But if you are on those things, use the Black Disabled Lives Matter hashtag every day. Tweet about something every single day. Send an Instagram every single day saying Black Disabled Lives Matter. Start reading and learning about the Black disabled people who have been killed by the police like Elijah McClain, right? Like Daniel Prude and start telling their stories because you know not everyone knows all of those stories and getting that out there every day and tagging President Biden in your tweet and tagging Vice President Kamala Harris in your tweet and saying, we want better for our people. Also tag your house and Senate members, your house of representatives and your Senate members. And you can find those by going to US Senate and House of Representative website and find your member. They go either by alphabet of their last name or you could put your state in and they will tell you who your members are. You should know your members. We have to keep doing that and tell them, yes, you passed the JPA for House members, but you need to make it better. Tell the Senate, this bill needs to be stronger and it needs to include disabled folks. It needs to include black disabled people Um, centering in this bill. And then, you know, have conversations that you have every day with people. When you're talking to people, people like to talk about things that are safe. These are issues and concerns that are not safe. And we are in times that are not safe. We're in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. Still wear your masks, double up on your masks. Don't listen to these people out here. And Start talking about things that make people uncomfortable. I'm so used to it. It doesn't even phase me anymore. But start talking about the importance of Black, Indigenous, people of color who are disabled and how important their lives are and that you are killing them in everything we do in this country through public health. The public health model is racist and ableist, which is why we're having the problems with COVID that we're having and even getting a vaccine out there. And connect that to law enforcement killing these people, killing our people, killing Black people. You're talking, if you're white, you're saying these people, right? But letting people know that safety for you is not the same thing for Black, Indigenous people of color who are also disabled. Letting people know you need to start listening to activists like Carrie Gray, like Justice Shorter, like T.L. Lewis, like Vilisa Thompson, like Keith Jones, like Leroy Moore. You need to start listening to people like Allison Donalds and and Anita Cameron and uh, Ashley White. These are people who are out here pushing in many different ways to change Black disabled lives and we need to support them 
And we need to let people know that we are going to knock down these barriers and that we are going to have hope. And then there's also people of color like Lydia Brown, right? And, and Mia Mingus and Alice Wong. Dustin from um, Pittsburgh, who's now in Connecticut. We need to push forward these wonderful activists who are doing this work and letting people know that we are not going to go anywhere. By the grace of God, this pandemic will be over, but this fight for Black disabled lives will not. And that's unfortunate. We're going to have to keep fighting. Thank you, Dara. Those are really inspiring words. And I'm grateful that you shared some really concrete things that people can do. And also shout out to Justice Shorter, former friend of the pod, former guest on the show. Um, <laughs> My sorority sister. Yes, yes. Beautiful human being. Um, so yeah. So thank you so much, Dara. This has been such a beautiful conversation. And I am so grateful for both you describe the challenges and also the hope. And I think that both exist and we need to, to keep moving towards that North Star. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for your work. Peace and blessings, everyone. Thank you for listening to this season of Down to the Struts. I wanted to take a moment to give special thanks to a number of people who have made this podcast possible. First, I wanted to express my incredible gratitude for the amazing team that brings the podcast to life. Alana Nevins for her excellent audio production, Avery Annapole for her skillful management of our social media platforms, Adrian Kong for her meticulous transcripts, and Anna Wu, who was with us from the beginning, launched the website and started the audio production. I am so fortunate to work with a group of such incredibly talented, amazing women. Thank you so much. I wanted to also thank Eiffel Gangsta Beats for the amazing music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. You can find them at Eiffel Gangsta Beats on Instagram. Check them out, they're fantastic. I'd also like to thank each and every guest that has joined me on the podcast. You have given of your time, your intellect, your creativity, and your wisdom. I cannot thank you enough. I have walked away from every conversation feeling more informed and having learned so much. Thank you to each and every one of my guests. And thanks to each and every one of you who has taken the time to listen to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have thoughts, feedback, questions, or ideas, please email us at downtothestruts at gmail.com. And finally, I wanted to thank my friends and family for all of your support on this incredible journey. I could not have done this without you, and I would not be here without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And while you're all waiting with bated breath for season three, you should make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. You can find us on our website at www.downtothestruts.com if you want to catch up on past episodes between seasons. You can also give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Looking forward to season three so we can get back down to it. 
Until then, be well, be safe, and hopefully I'll be seeing you closer to the other side of this pandemic. Thank you.